This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. William McGuinness, welcome to Better Reading. Cheryl Arkell, thank you for having me. <laughs> I like the Cheryl Arkell bit. Cheryl Arkell. It's formal. It is formal. Cheryl Arkell. <laughs> Cheryl Arkell. I like that. Hey, speaking of names, do you do... Cheryl <laughs> It's a good it name. It sounds like a sort of Clint Easton early television episode. Of yeah, Cheryl Arkell. Yeah. I like it. Hey, you know, speaking of names, yes. when a person has two first names, like say Mary Kelly, yeah, or um, so Mary's a first name, but that's her surname, do you find you call the person by both names or is that just me? Uh, now I'm thinking of people with two first names. So if your name was William John, for instance. Well, my name is Daryl William, so I had a hyphenated name. Oh, right. Daryl. So I then would call you Daryl Williams all the time. Well, DW is one that was a nickname I had for a while. DW, which was sounded yeah. a bit grand, but then you know my father hated Daryl, so he just called me William. And my mother, yeah, I, I much prefer it to Daryl. Daryl William, yeah, it was well. Then that, <laughs> that was not a bad name, Daryl William. Back onto the introduction. It is William McGuinness. I love outdoors. And he is talking to Cheryl Arkell. And there's going to be a bit of, some people complain that I talk over people, but I think this time around, dear dear listeners, you'll appreciate it's going to be the other way around. Okay. He's one, he probably needs no introduction, but here I go. He's one of Australia's most popular writers and actors. His books include the best-selling memoirs, A Man's Gotta Have a Hobby, and that'd be right. In 2012, his book, Worst Things Happen at Sea, co-written by his wife, Sarah Watt, was named the best non-fiction title in the Arbia and Indie Awards. Also an award-winning actor and best known for his leading roles in Blue Healers and Sea Change. William has won two Logies, an AFI award and best actor in the film Unfinished Sky. He recently starred in the TV dramas Deepwater and Rake, grew up in Queensland and lives in Melbourne with his two children. Yay. How old are those kids now? They must be adults. Well, they are. They both yeah. are their 21st. <gasps> wow. Yeah. My son wow. stayed with me down the coast here during lockdown. Yeah. He moved out of his flat and he moved in here. It was like um, That's smart. a same gender mother and son was father and son. <laughs> yeah. it, it was pretty noisy. <laughs> Although you might must have appreciated the company. Uh, yeah, and that was fun. It was sort of lovely. It's nice when you, I mean, in a way it was enforced, but it was uh, nice being able to spend time with one of your kids like that and work yeah. out, well, you're a reasonable human being, I quite like your company. Not mm. sort of on a permanent basis, of course, but uh, no, it was nice. And had Ray and Delilah, the dogs, that was good. Mm. You know, I met a, a couple um, over the weekend, speaking of lockdown, uh, who had been on a cruise 
and I don't know, maybe they were in their early 60s and they had to be locked in that cabin for two weeks. And then when they came to shore, they had to be locked in a hotel for another two weeks. Man, oh, man. It is you know, they survived it. Wow. As a, cu- as a couple, that would be tough. That would be very tough. That would be tough. I mean, the minibar can only get you through so much. But Ex- uh, Well, they don't have the minibar in lockdown. Well, I- They clear the fridge. They clear the fridge. My nephew came back from, uh, where was he, Dubai, and he yeah. had to do it in Melbourne. Yeah. He's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully in lockdown. You know, one of the things in lockdown which amazed me was how many times in Melbourne here either Rambo, Rocky or Taken was on. It was like <laughs> you set your calendar, you watch by, you know, I will, I will have a particular sort of... <laughs> I sort of started thinking, I want to... Where's my Rambo kid? That has got to be one of the funniest films. Someone tried to tell it to, to me that... That is a sort of terrific... When he is at the end, Sylvester Stallone, and he is walking around with this machine gun that's twice as big as he is, he looks like a toddler. He's sort of, he's had too much red cordial. And that speech where he's saying, It's just like, you know, if I had a... I've got a... I want to I put that on my ringtone. Do you know I've never watched... I've never watched it, so maybe I have to go and have a look. Oh, you've got to watch it. It's so funny. Okay, all right, I'm going to do that. Oh, what did you say? Anyway. I never quite got it because I could never understand what he was saying. Now, listen, um, I, the book is called Christmas Tales, and I think it is a good time to be talking and thinking Christmas because we don't know whether we're going to be with our families or not. But I love the idea that you have that you love Christmas, and I think – it really is polarising these days, the people that do and the people that don't. Talk to me about why you love Christmas. Well, I think Christmas is a touchstone in your life. You, mm. know, you measure your progress through life by Christmas in one way. You know, it's a time that can be very fraught, it can be a bit of an emotional hothouse. Sooner or later we all get one of those Christmases where someone is just so hard to be with and to deal with. It's like, you know, you're going to the Corleone family Christmas from Godfather and Michael is sort of just staring at you with those. Michael Corleone. <laughs> you sort of, you give someone a sort of shopping voucher and like, you broke my heart, Fredo. You know, no, mate, you can, you can exchange it, okay? It's that sort of thing. And, and, you know, bad Christmases can sometimes be wonderfully funny moments. Like I remember we had a festive Christmas with my wife's and my late wife's family, extended family up at Burua, beautiful country town. After she'd passed away. Oh, no, this is because my father-in-law called it Christmas of Funny Walks because it was one of those times a lurgy was going around. Yeah. And everyone got the runs and there were five sort of outhouse <laughs> property, but that wasn't enough. Uh, I can always remember people racing off hither and thither and it was sort of like uh, an Agatha Christie sort of, who you, you know you're going to be the next victim. And I remember grandmother, her grandmother, who was this indomitable old matriarch sort of sitting down and ordering one of the son-in-laws to pour her a scotch and she said, make it a good one. Uh, I want a butcher's pour, which is like, you know, yeah, it's like two fingers. A gallon. <laughs> but a butcher's, butcher's pour is that because you've got, you missed your two fingers at this. <laughs> and she said, this has been a damn awful Christmas. Uh, and she goes, we've had more runs than Brandon. And, um, and one of the son-in-laws said, yes. And all before lunch, grandmother, we are doing well. So that became the Don Bradman Christmas. And so you adopt these sort of uh, moments in your life and you celebrate them. And Christmas is a time, I think, you know, it is polarising. I mean, some people can say that it's just a crass commercial exercise now without any spiritual value. 
But it's also a time, I think, I mean, the positive of Christmas is that there is this period, and I don't care if it's only a week or two weeks, where people actually do think outside themselves and there is this idea of good citizenship. And I don't think, you know, people want to celebrate random acts of kindness. I don't think that, I don't, I've never believed in random acts of kindness. I just believe in good citizenship and that's a time when we exhibit it more. Yes, it's a time of gluttony and excess and, you know, wanton commercialism in one way, but it's also a time of a, of a, of a shared experience and, and a generous spirit. And I think, you know, if you want to hop into it and attack it, you've got every right to, but you don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater because it's a wonderful time. It's a kind time. And it's the time you, I guess, you ruminate and you think we are all just passing through mm. and, you know, you don't just... You must have had some tough ones, so Oh, some awful Christmases, yeah. Mm. Just, I've said before that, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm not overtly religious, uh, mm. I, like my father, who he, he's, <laughs> he said we're a New Testament house, but we're advanced lapsed, you know. <laughs> Know how to cross yourself, know who to ride with in trouble, but for Christ's sake, don't take it too seriously. Which I think, yeah, that's my attitude, uh, I think. But, you know, I sometimes like quite often like going to light candles of remembrance. I don't know why, I just like it. Uh, and, you know, for a guy who's had a very fortunate life, I like way too many of them. And it's like a moment where you take stock and you think, yes, it's not great when you live through, you know, loss and illness and grief and death mm. um and that's why christmas can be hard because it's a family event that's and you I'm remember doing. you know oh, of course you do but then that's a part of the joy too i mean i can always remember my parents getting these phone calls christmas night which were people from all around the world they're because they immigrated to australia uh you know ireland england liverpool canada thailand all, all over the place. And we had to line up, and it was in the days of uh, when, you hear, when you heard a, a call, it was a beeping call, whoever answered was, it's a beeping call, mm-hmm. which means it's long distance. Mm-hmm. And, and it's expensive. Yeah, and you had to line up and you had to listen to all these voices that were sort of vaguely like my parents, but we sounded like they came from Doctor Who. You know, I can remember my, my mother's aunts from... Wales. Mum didn't have a thick Welsh accent, but her sister did, who lived in Wales. She stayed there. And it was like, what And I was such a, I was an idiot, but quite basically. I think my father and mother always sort of divvying up responsibility for me. Like, what is your son doing? What is your idiot son doing? And my mother would say, oh, you had nothing to do with it? <laughs> Call me it. So I was the last one and I would always just sort of listen to this, what's this woman saying? Hello, are you? Come on now. Come on, come on, William. Come on, Darren William. <laughs> and you just go, uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, oh. So don't, don't do that, Darren William. Don't do that. You'll be like the postman's boy, Derek. They locked him up. <laughs> and then your mother goes, oh, don't mind him. He's an idiot. And then they speak to each other in Welsh. Like, like that sort of. And I was thinking, who are these people? How am I related to them? And I, we always used to get calendars sent from Northern, you know, from the Northern Hemisphere, you know, beautiful island or, you know, welcome to Wales. And there was always remember looking at this castle that was sort of shrouded in snow and wondering, is that where Derek, you know, the, po- the postman's boys locked up because he did weird things out. But my parents, you know, they would listen to that. Yeah. 
And then they would be so affected, they'd just be by themselves for a moment because you'd remember, and that's the family they grew up with. I love the ritual of it, you know, and I still do. So my mother's quite religious. We grew up Catholic even though I'm now an atheist probably. But um, not advanced lapsed. Yeah, not advanced lapse. I think I'm an advanced, advanced, advanced lapse. But anyway, I I value the tradition and I value the community that she gets from it. I absolutely and totally respect her and her community. But what she used to do, and she still does it, she has this beautiful brown paper and she makes a nativity scene. Oh, yes. And she even feeds the Christmas light through to the, into the box and it's mm-hmm. all very real. And when you're little, it is so, I was so awestruck every Christmas. Yeah. And she leaves out baby Jesus because he's not born yet. And then when you wake up Christmas morning, there baby is. Jesus is in the nativity scene. That's lovely. Oh, my God. It was for me, and she still does it, but for me growing up, I mean, that was the first thing I went to every time. To yeah. There. I used to love Advent calendars. Yes. I mean, they've got chocolate in them these days. Yeah. <laughs> Advent calendar that was, you know, it had written word, you know, King Herod orders all the firstborn males to be killed. That's the first thing on the shepherd sees the star and go, whoa. Other kids get Cadbury chocolate and we get a got the horror story. <laughs> right. I wrote in the first book how I went to a rugby way and I always sort of, Herod is, you don't hear that name much anymore. And uh, at a rugby way in, I said, someone said, Darrell William McGuinness. And I said, that's not my name, Herod McGuinness. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's one of Kenny T's name, Kenny Slingsby. Slingsby. He worked in the council. Yeah. But he went, uh, right, Herod McGuinness. And it's not a name you hear, you know. Hey, come here, son, would you, you know. And then mum went to pay the rates once and uh, he said, oh, hello, Mrs. McGinnis. Hello, Kenny, how are you? Yes, how's young uh, Herod going? <laughs> exactly. Hey, now tell me, I want to know, because, you know, this podcast is called Stories Behind the Story, so how it is that you came to writing, but also I guess how it is you came to storytelling because, you know, you're an actor, which is a storyteller, and you actually write. So talk to me. So did you have siblings and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? How did you get on this path? I had no idea, really, and I was the youngest of five and, as I said, the stupidest, I think. I was was a bit of an idiot quite frankly. And I was the youngest by a fair whack. And we were all pretty bright. We we're all sort of, we we're all gone on and done well, which mm. is, you know, so that's nice for professionals, I suppose. Of, grown-ups. <laughs> we are grown-ups. <laughs> I do my own shoelaces. Yeah. Um, uh, but we, we used to love hearing stories. Uh, we grew up, it had a huge table and you'd listen to the stories of the day. Everyone would go around and tell stories. Is this at dinner table? Yes, at dinner time and, you know, at lunch, on a mm. Sunday lunch and at breakfast. It was like fun and that's how I guess I, I learnt to like stories. And I just want to interrupt there because I just want to quote Stephanie Alexander, you know, the great cook. Um, yes. I heard her once on radio speaking and she said dinner time and meal times are so important to have your children present because a lot of people don't eat with their kids. And she said because it is where language happens, it's where mm. connection happens. And I think that is so true, where storytelling happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, the love of stories, you know, yeah. listening to my father or my brother or my sisters talk about their day trips into work or whatever or some character they bumped into and then you'd be encouraged to tell stories too. And if you didn't tell good ones, you were 
you were told you weren't a very good storyteller. And, you know, I, that we, like, we, we, we lived in a house that, you know, we went to the library every Friday. Friday was, you know, fish day and library day. And we'd all go off as a family, uh, which was fun. Uh, so art, I guess, was also thought of as a good thing to engage in. And, you know, I guess through that and the way that my parents loved guys, watching guys on TV like Dave Allen, mm. who was a comedian in the 1970s when I was very young, and he, his whole stick was just sitting down and telling a story and it was great and I loved it. And I guess, you know, I didn't mean to, to be an actor. Uh, I, was, I remember at school we had in year 10, we had to write down, we were encouraged to keep a diary and, uh, you know, put down five things you want to be. And I thought, oh, God, well, I don't know what I want to be. And I sort of said, I sort of said a journalist. And then I ran out and I sort of said, you know. Oh, gee, that was good, solicitor and know, What was I journalist. Professional lumberjack, you know, <laughs> fish finger. I asked my seven-year-old nephew the other day, I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, uh, I think I might wash cars. I said, you no. know what, I think we can do better than that. A fish finger fancy. There you go. I um, so you know, I, I don't know what I and you know, I thought I'd go to university and most likely become some sort of you know, barge-assed suburban solicitor. Uh, I, I sort of when I went to uni, it didn't really work out that way because I, <laughs> I just enjoyed myself way too much. Was uh, the bar frequently? I'd imagine. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't play too much rug anyway. And uh, I went to uni. Then I did another course and then I was going to go back and finish law. Uh, and I just saw a girl I was going out with says, why don't you try out for this thing? And it's like uh, there's a drama school in Perth called Whopper. It's named after the hamburger. Mm-hmm. Takes two hands to handle a Whopper. And uh, I did that and yeah, that's I thought oh, I'll give it a while. And I so were you, where were you living? I owned in Queensland. This oh, right. And then I just did that and then, you know, I told stories through performance, I always quite liked fiddling with words and scripts and sort of adding bits and pieces. And then somebody asked me to write a column, newspaper column, occasionally. So I did that. And then Bernadette Foley from Hachette rang up one day and said, hello, my name's Bernadette Foley from Hachette Publishers. Would you like to write a book? And I thought, oh, yeah. I thought this is either one of my friends being stupid. So I started being stupid back and I worked out that she was real and publisher. I went, oh, fair enough. Yeah, she's real. <laughs> that was it. And I just, you know, I, you know, you tell stories. And I didn't want to write about myself. But then if you write memoirs, the thing is you don't write about yourself. You write about the people you see and you tell their stories and you're in it. You're a character in it. You're the narrator. Uh, I've never liked, I mean, I don't think my, it's sort of like being that idea of a life story. I just sort of thought, oh, my God. <laughs> woman came up to me at a book signing and she said, why should I read your book? What's so important about your life? And I said, oh, well, not nothing really. I mean, you know, <laughs> why? Look, I, I read Jimmy Barnes's book and I loved it. Why should I read your book? You don't look like you've lived a life. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, now, I, okay, I'm not a legendary rock god who grew up in an abusive, nightmarish household that had enough love in it for him to sort of journey through life and become, it's, you know, my life story is not like that. And if you want one of those, it's almost like people want to have a misery read to make them feel better about themselves. I mean, what I write about is what I see. And I I kind of, I said to this woman, well, look, you know, I am basically what you see. I'm a sort of big, comfortable, indulged, 
middle-class Australian, but that doesn't mean that I haven't lived a life and I've met interesting people and, you know, we've got a shared experience. It's just not that story. And that story is a riveting story. But And also it's a one-off, you know, if you're writing yeah. a memoir. I remember speaking to Arne Doe, you know, who wrote The House. Oh, yeah, The Refugee Lab. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, really great book. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Yeah, and it really resonated. But a lot of the journalists were asking him, like, oh, when are you writing your next book? And he's like, well, I've got to live another 30 life yeah. <laughs> to be able to add to it, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's the sort of thing. With, I mean, my idea of the, the way I write is that I sort of think sometimes getting out of the bed in the middle of the night and going off to the toilet can be bigger than an Indiana Jones adventure. But it's that sort of ordinary, mundane wonder that I like writing about. And the people that you meet, you don't set out to meet people that are characters, but if you pay enough attention to what goes on around you, you just see that there's so much fun and wonder in people. I mean, I had a drama at drama school. There was this woman I thought was a little bit of a space cadet. She was a movement teacher. And she just said, she was always into sort of, you know, all that spiritual new age stuff, which, you know, but she was a generous soul. And she said, you mustn't ever want to move on too fast without exploring all the universes on two legs that are out there because that's what an individual is. It's a, it's a new galaxy to explore. And I thought, oh, are you sure? And the other I go, but she's actually on the money because people are rivetingly entertaining. I mean, some people are as boring as batshit, like, you know, but most most people are... You know, everyone's unique in a, in, a, in a certain way. And then by writing about a shared experience and telling people's stories through that experience, like, you know, Christmas, for instance, then I kind of like that because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a catalogue of Australian stories. And, I, you know, you don't want to be like, you know, one of those people like, I'm an Aussie story, a yarn spinner, you know. I don't, it's, you don't, you can't, and you can't make stuff up. I mean, you add a bit of mayo here and then you look after people. But if you make, if you, if you bung on an act, people will sniff you out a mile away. And I don't see the point. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm Helen Demodenko and I'm sort of doing a Ukrainian two step or whatever. Or but, remember the um, um, woman that I told you about? Was oh, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say that. Norma Corey. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. She ended up living in Bridie Island. Yeah, she is. I think she's still living in Australia. I mean, completely crooked, yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When I read your books, there is a certain amount of empathy in the storytelling that you give who you're writing about a unique voice, I guess, but 
even though sometimes it's very funny and maybe you're laughing at them and maybe you're not, but they're people. Well, that's a very nice thing to say. And yeah, I think that's the way to go about. You've got you, you, to enjoy your fellow human beings. You've got to be able to do that with a sense of compassion, I think, because none mm. of them are perfect. I mean, I, I can be an absolute, you know, risshole sometimes. I mean, I can bang on and I've not been invited to a few houses after <laughs> some of my views on politics, you know. Mm. A friend of mine just said, oh, here we go, back to the 1950s with William. <laughs> Are you a conservative? Uh, well, I'm not a, you know, well, you're sort of, relatively. Oh. I'm not really? That. Don't tell me that. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I know. It's just that it's so. I mean, How is that for a commitment? <laughs> really, I mean, will it affect the book sales? I mean, look, I'm a bit conservative, but I'm not a. I'm Trump a, supporter. I like social institutions and I like the way that there's basic rules and regulations and they should sort of be adhered to as as much as we can. And I also like people not telling other people how to live their lives. I mean, I don't, I don't like soapboxes. And I yeah. just think that, you know, Australia's become a pretty lovely place because the generations before have looked after it and have been generous enough in their spirit to want to share their lives with not just their time, but you know, uh, generations that come after. And I think that's, that's conserving means, it doesn't mean you want to stay the same because I think Australia is one of those countries, this is what I've learned to actually, it's in a state of flux and it's always evolving and that's a very, very precious thing to celebrate because you talk to people today and they think, oh, Australia is such a wretched place and this, this way we've got going about is so conserved and we don't care. And I try and say... Australia is so different from what it was 20 years ago. Mm. And in 20 years before that, you probably wouldn't even recognise it. And 20 years before that, it just changes so much. Uh, and that's to be celebrated. I mean, like the same sex, it was a disaster how it came about. But, you know, that embracing of, 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 of uh, uh, you know, a commitment that a human being can make to another. And just because you were the same sex, you, you weren't allowed to do that. And yet we, we were, as a country, we sort of got through that and we made an evolutionary change. And, you know, now you think, what is the fuss? What is the fuss? What, what, whatever was the fuss? So you know, I've noticed this, and you would have noticed it with your boys. Like I've noticed in children, they don't even give it a second thought. No, of course they don't. They just don't. It's just part no, it, of their life. Yeah. This is who yeah. we are. Yeah. But, you know, when I was growing up, you know, and when yeah, we were growing up, probably, probably dogs mm-hmm. and Frogs, you know, sectarianism almost doesn't exist anymore in Australia uh, the way it used to. You know, if you're a Labor Party man, you were uh, you're a Catholic. It's bizarre. Like you know, the last Abbott and Turnbull were both Catholics. I mean, Bob Menzies would have been rolling in his grave. That's how we change. And I, so I guess I like the way we change in a gradualist way, which is you not. Know, yeah. ago, I know, but I kind of like that we get where we're going in the right way. And it may not be as quick as some people need or want, but... Well, it doesn't sound that conservative to me. I think the problem with conservatives now, and, and we're talking about far right, is just it's full of hatred oh, yeah. and, you know, and greed. I mean, you know, and people are in positions of power for the wrong reason, you know, to acquire well, personal wealth. and the fringes, yeah. the fringes of both sides I don't have much truck with. That's why I just, I'm like a Volvo. I'm a Volvo. I drive Volvo. 
And you know, I, I see the, the middle of the road, that white line in the middle of the road that goes right up to Volvo's middle. And I make lots of friends when they wave and yell at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I drive with a hat too. Oh, do you? My mother used to call Volvo drivers Volvo swine and she couldn't quite understand how one of her children had become a Volvo swine. She used to call me VS for a while. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was that idea that, you know, they would love to make names up and they celebrated language, my parents. And my family, you know, that's what I loved about growing up in that house. You know, like when there was someone, you know, when you're kids and there was a cowboy movie on a Sunday, you'd sort of get your guns or things and you'd sort of be shooting at the, the TV screen and dying and carrying on. And we said, you were mucking around, you were playing, you were part of the movie. But when there was a love scene, <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but someone would go, oh, no, kissy under yips, and everyone would lie on their back and go like that, like, <laughs> you see on the yips. How did that, I don't know how that came about, but it was pretty funny. Hey, tell me about acting versus writing. I mean, tell me about your acting career, because it's pretty stellar. Oh, I don't know if it's that stellar. I mean, you know, I was at a Bunnings not that long ago and someone was looking at me, thinking who, wondering who I was. And then they started speaking about it, which can be a bit of a worry. It's like, oh, no, come on, man. She says, what I know, I'm right, I know you are, you're off the telly, don't tell me, what's the show is it, what the show, what the show is it? You're in Matlock Police. I was, sorry, you're Paul Cronin. And I nearly said, mate, you know, I was in bloody nappies when Paul Cronin was in Matlock Police, which is pretty funny, you know, uh, and you can't ever take it too seriously. Look, I did a COVID test down here, and I'm not kidding you, it's sort of groovy you get remembered. Uh, but some people look at you, like I did a meet and greet after a Melbourne Theatre Company show a couple of years ago and this woman came up to me and I said, oh, hello. And she said, I thought it was a fat suit. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I thought he was padding. And I yeah. said, I said, she went, but still change. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, that was 20 years ago and about 20 kilograms. And she said, but why? <laughs> I was thinking, well, you know. But, hey, you know, life happens. But Aren't I went- people rude? I did um, a little bit of telly. They're funny. Yeah, they're very funny. I did a little bit of telly. I was on the circle doing book reviews once a yeah. month. This was a few years back. And I walked into a coffee shop here. So I used to shoot it in Melbourne, fly down and come back. I walked into a coffee shop and the lady recognised me and I was feeling like, Shaft, yeah. right? First time. And she said, Oh, are you the woman that does the book reviews on the circle? And I said, I am, I am, thank you. And thinking, well, this is really nice. And she said, Oh, you look much better on television than you do in real life. Well, yeah, that's what you get. That's what you get. <laughs> and I walked out completely deflated. <laughs> well, I was doing this COVID test, right? And it was a drive-through, which was yeah. just wild. You know, you get a drive-through to I haven't done one at all because well, I haven't had to. It's like you're going to get, can I have two Big Macs and a COVID test, please? Yes, up your nostrils. <laughs> It'd be good if they gave you a milkshake. They uh, do it all. And my nostrils like that. And I was, you know, I had this growing this beard for this role and I had a hat on and sunglasses and like that. Oh. And then this young woman, an army medic, was swap, putting a swab up my nose and she said, weren't you in Blue Healers? <laughs> now, two things. She must have been a keen observer of uh, that if she's just seen my nostrils and she's recognised my nostrils from Blue Healers, as a mate of mine said, well, mate, it's a big nose, probably the biggest <laughs> thing about your performance. But the other one was, I mean, I said, how can you remember? It's 20, it must be 22, 23. Mm. She said, oh, we've been watching it on streaming. And I thought, oh, my God, 
And so that's sort of cool when you're remembered like that. Uh, Do you like acting? Uh, yeah, some look, I like it enough to sort of keep doing it on and off. I like being, someone did ask uh, how, how uh, a good friend of mine, I asked her, how's William going in lockdown? And she said, listen, if any man is prepared for lockdown, it's him. He was born semi-retired. <laughs> so I kind, I kind of like it enough to keep doing it. And like I, and I like doing stuff that sort of got a bit of a brain to it. And I like doing a mixture like, you know, film, telly or stage. But I don't want to do, I don't like doing it constantly. I think a show like Blue Heel is sort of maybe very leery of that constant thing, the constant work. Uh, How was, long were you on there? I was on for about four years. Yeah. And, you know, you had to hang around a lot and, you know, is that that was interesting in a way because you get out of drama school and you think you're the bee's knees, you know, you're the duck's nuts, but then you see yourself and I, I've seen some episodes of Blue Healers and I am just beyond terrible. I'm so wooden and callow. And Was I'm, that your first job? No, I, I, one of my first jobs was uh, marrying a ranger on country practice. Oh, right, yeah. Wow. yeah I, was a, I was a shopping store Santa and then I went and I left that behind because I was a terrible Santa Claus. I was just awful. And I went and married uh, the ranger, who's a lovely woman called Kate Basin. She's a, she's a super actor. Uh, but, yeah, I was terrible in that too. I was, <laughs> I was a paleontologist. Digging up Blondin Valley in search of this prehistoric wonder that they'd found there, you know. But I remember doing it, and oh my God, Cheryl, I was so bad, you know. I looked like Roger Moore's Australian nephew, who's a bit stupid. <laughs> and um, I, when it was on, because it was a bit of a deal, because it was a very popular show, and I was on it for about two months. And so the first show I was on, we all went to the Paddington RSL, you know, in. Uh, padding in there. We watched it, we went to the hall with a age to call Bingo. They used to have a big screen there and it was on. My mate said, Well, oh, fellas, on country practice, can we watch it? Oh, yeah, that's a good show. You can watch country practice. And I came on and we watched it. And I was seriously thinking, I've got to go back and do some more uni because I've got to get a job because no one's going to employ me. <laughs> this is not sustainable. And one of my friends, it was his silence after it was finished, and one of my mates just said, Will, just think, you gave up Santa for that. <laughs> but, you know, I like I like the team aspect of um, acting. And I like, you know, telling stories. I like being a part of a, a, a group. I like that. Uh, but, you know, you're just, uh, you're just a part of a bigger team, like, especially in film and telly. You know, you are just, in a way, it's almost no care and responsibility because, you know, the editors, people put you in clothes, the makeup guys, people who shoot you, the director, the writer, decisions that are made in an edit booth, they, that's all out of your hands. Mm-hmm. In stage, you know, that's where an actor is king. You know, when you're in a play and you're doing stuff, that's where you own, you're the boss. So what's your preferred medium, or like acting, writing, stage? Uh, I like, see, acting is a group thing. Yeah. And writing's not. I mean, you know, you've got people you've got to run things through sort of or, you know, chat about as editors and publishers. But basically it's you and the keyboard or however you write and that's it. And that's something about that is really good. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not the best writer in the world, uh, but I the first book I wrote, I was so, it was like, wow, I've actually done something pretty reasonable with my life. And it always slightly amazes me 
because I am a bit of a punz and, you know, lazy enough and indulgent enough to sort of think it's a bit of a feat that I finish something like a book. Like when my, but, it, you know, you, also the way I was brought up, you don't actually, you want to showboat too much. That was the worst thing we could do. And this, my dad said, never showboat. Whatever you do, never showboat. Mm-hmm. Just get on and do it. And I had a great teacher, Jeff Gibbs. He was the dean at drama school. He's a lovely man. Uh, and I, he saw me eating a polywaffle. And he said, I'm going to get a polywaffle too. So he goes, you've got a lot of dean. He goes, and he sits down next to you and he's, he's eating a polywaffle. He said, William, I think you're all right. You're a bit of a, you can be a bit of a knob. But I want to give you a bit of advice. Whatever you do through life and through work, because I think you, you've got a bit of a future, never take yourself seriously, but take what you do seriously. And he did this great thing. He said, because, I love that. He said, because life is just too much fun to disappear up your bum. And I thought, what a great, and I thought, yeah. And he was a lovely man. And I tried to be like that, I think. Well, I think that's a great note to finish on. Not going up your bum. Well, Not going the, up your bum. Yeah, I quite like that. Well, Buddhist saying, you are you 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 are where you are, and if mm. you follow that advice, and if you can talk yourself, you'll find yourself in a very dark place. Uh, the book is called Christmas Tales. Uh, William McGinnis, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Cheryl Arkell, it is fun. It's always fun talking to you, Cheryl Arkell. Cheryl Arkell. Cheryl Arkell. It's now if you're listening, I'm not making fun. We were talking at the beginning about names that you sort of say quickly and you run together. But it's always a pleasure talking to you, Cheryl. It is. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.